What a wonderful song to sing. What a Savior. And it fits with so well with what I want to introduce us to this morning, and that's going to be our theme as a church for 2023. And that theme is contentment in Christ, finding our contentment in Him. And we'll be doing a variety of things throughout the year, of course, reading together, praying together, studying together, singing and worship, sharing stories together. But I put a full description for you in our newsletter that hopefully you've already read and thought about, but I want to read it to you again this morning because this is how I see what contentment in Christ will look like in our lives. So first of all, we desire as God's people to live in a state of spiritual satisfaction and peace and fulfillment and joy and restfulness. And to achieve this, we need to learn to stop relying on our efforts to live life and do ministry, which only mimics contentment in Christ and often results in undesirable outcomes both in our own lives and the lives of other people. But instead, we need to grow in our reliance upon the gospel for all good things, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit and appreciating more fully our Lord Christ for who He is, what He's accomplished, and the eternal benefits that He's purchased for us. And this course of action is going to result in true contentment in Christ, and display the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, which will then bless others and those around us. And so that's what we'll be pursuing together throughout this year. The, of course, the main Bible verse that this would be attached to, you'll see a lot around here, is Matthew 11, 28 and 29, where our Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me open us in prayer. Oh, Lord God, Lord Jesus, it is our hope, as we just read this morning and thought about, that you would grant this type of satisfaction in our lives in new and fresh ways throughout this year, ways that maybe some we can anticipate what you might do, places we hope you might work in our lives, but we also know that you provide abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And we know that you will bring a new level of contentment and satisfaction in you to us. We do confess as your people, as we read above, that we do need to be taught to stop relying upon ourselves. That this is part of our problem, is looking to ourselves to even produce spiritual growth and strength in our lives. It makes no sense to us, of course, theologically. But we know that that's what we do. And we need your power to change us and to redirect our thoughts and our meditations and that they would be set upon you and your work for us. And this is our resolve that we would rest upon your grace and your mercy and your power for our own lives and for the lives of those around us and that we would be praying for each other and encouraging each other to find contentment in you, Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would make all of these things that we've just spoken become a reality in our lives as we go forward in 2023. Amen. So along with that, the book of the month that I would recommend to you is this book, Gentle and Lowly. Again, all the details are in the news and notes. So this is an excellent book. It's all based on Matthew 11, 28, 29. So it's, I finished the book uh, mid-year this year. Uh, the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. So Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland probably one of the best books I've ever read on the love of God. So I'd really encourage you to pick that one up and read it. Well, we're continuing our study on the Gospel of Luke this morning, 
We're in Luke 17. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the text I've printed for you. But you know, one of the things that we're going to see this morning uh, in this passage is that it's very much uh, the reality of the things that we experience in our life today, too. You know, many people cry out to God for, for Him to uh, relief, bring relief into their lives all the time, whether some crisis going on. Even people who don't really know who God is, they'll cry out to God. And God being such a merciful God, He so often answers people's requests, even those that don't really know Him or spend much time with Him, and even in the manner in which they want Him to help. But then you think about, well, what kind of thanks does God frequently get for doing all these things for people? For most people, I think it's just a, it's a quick thank you uh, in the time of need, and uh, thank you God very much. Maybe He gets a good deed out of it, you know, I mean, sincerely from people. Um, maybe he gets a, a check for a few dollars on the offering plate if they're churchgoers sometimes. Maybe a little bit more, but as long as the feeling is there of thankfulness, then there's the gratitude. But once that goes away, it's amazing how quick faith evaporates. But then we think about, is that all God really deserves for what he does? Wouldn't the proper response when God answers our prayers, when we cry out in the midst of our distress, to be to seek hard after him afterwards and to really want to know him? The Apostle Paul in Romans 2 says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience and not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But God is constantly merciful to so many people, but so often once people get what they want from him, they discard whatever faith they had. And so one wonders if this is, this is true, which in our experience we see so often, why does God even continue being so merciful to so many people? Why would he continue in light of the little thanks that he tends to really receive. Well, it's because he really is a merciful God. That testifies all the more to who he really is in his character and his patience and his kindness and his forbearance. Of course, the ultimate hope for outcome when, when God does give general acts of mercy to people is that they would come to see Jesus Christ for who he really is, the glorious Son of God, and that they would receive even more than what they hoped for, that they would actually gain salvation in Christ. And that's what our passage this morning teaches us in Luke 17, 11 through 19, in the story of the cleansing of the ten lepers. So on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along, that is Jesus, between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, the focus of this episode is not so much on the nine who didn't show up or on the miracle itself, which of course is an amazing miracle, but really the focus is on the one who returned to Jesus Christ to give him the praise that he was due. And what we learned this morning is that we're to be constantly giving praise to God through Jesus Christ for gratitude, for our salvation, and all the benefits that he brings into our lives. And that's Luke's desire, of course, in recording this passage for us, is to lead many mercy recipients to a true salvation in Jesus Christ. So in verses 11 to 14, we find out what God is really like. God responds mercifully to so many who cry out to him. And then in verses 15 to 17, we are given a promise that 
those who respond properly through Jesus Christ receive salvation. So let's take a look more closely at this passage. So first, Luke shows us what God is like, that He responds so mercifully to so many people who cry out to Him. There's this urgent request for mercy in 11 to 13, and then, of course, in verse 14, the healing is granted. And so as our passage begins, it says, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and He entered a village met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Lifting up their voices, they cried out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, as we're reading through Luke, one phrase that really should stand out to you is that Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. It sure seems like it's taking him a long time to get there. Because back in chapter 9, we learned that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And many times in Luke's gospel, since the end of chapter 9, he said, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. And so in reality, Jesus has been taking his sweet time, going back and forth between Judea, Samaria, Galilee. He had a lot of ministry yet to do, it seems. But Luke mentions this again on purpose for us to realize that the destiny of Jesus in Jerusalem is getting closer. It's on purpose to put back into our minds as the readers of the gospel that the cross and the resurrection are the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came. And in fact, we really shouldn't lose sight of it because that's the key to interpreting every single passage that you read in the gospel of Luke, is to look forward to the end. The cross was the payment for our sin debt to God, and He would remove our guilt and our shame and free us from fear. The resurrection promises us eternal life, confirms our justification and our honor and our hope before God. So perhaps Jesus was on His way going south, you know, to, to goes over across to Perea to turn south, crossing the Jordan then, goes back to Jerusalem. We don't know His route for sure, but Luke is just interested in telling us that He's near both areas, Samaria and Galilee. And perhaps that explains why we have a leper colony that's mixed between these two groups, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so he enters this particular village, we don't know the name of the village, and ten lepers meet him, and they stand at this distance, the standard uh, six feet minimum, and uh, the lepers knew their position in society. They knew it. They sensed God's judgment. I mean, lepers were considered filthy, uh, they were considered uh, unclean, uncurable, and it was thought by many that, if, well, the reason God would put such harsh judgment on you is because there must be some sin in your life. I mean, everyone's a sinner, of course, so maybe these particular lepers did commit some particular sin. We don't know the story. But leprosy, like any disease that we suffer from in this world, is just part of the experience of life and death in a fallen world. But the lepers were exiled. There are health reasons for it, of course, and, but they were truly ostracized from the community. I mean, forever unclean. There's no hope for these people. And leprosy here, as we read about it in the Bible, could be precisely the disease of leprosy that, that we know. There are areas in East Asia, and I know I've been out to some ministries that have done some work among leper colonies. It could be that particular disease that involves lesions and swollen areas of your skin, and eventually paralysis comes in, deformity, other things. But the biblical term is also a general term for many types of skin diseases. But what's important to realize is that the only other precedent in the Bible of healing of leprosy besides Luke chapter 5, which we looked at when Jesus did it, was with Elisha. Otherwise, no one's ever been healed of that, you see, in the Bible. So in Luke 4.27, we read where Jesus said, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
And then we looked at the example in Luke chapter 5 because it testifies to Jesus being the Messiah, that he would actually heal someone from leprosy. In Luke 5.12, it came about that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him, and he healed them of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Now the law of Moses uh, provided instructions for dealing with leprosy and restoration, if that were possible. So you can read all about it in Luke 13 and 14 if you'd like. Way too much information to go over this morning, very extensive. But it involved the priests, it would involve the temple. It was a very extensive process, a week-long process. Uh, and eventually, if the healing took place, the priest would pronounce that at the end, and then the person could re-enter society and continue to join worship with the people of God. But anyway, these ten men, they cry out to Jesus in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I mean, they want his attention they know exactly who he is, and they want his healing, and they're urgent and insistent upon this. They speak better than they realize, perhaps, when they call him master, master of the world. And then he grants them mercy, we see in verse 14, when he says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. Well, Jesus acts without immediate visible results this time. He simply tells them, go visit the priest. It's a test. Jesus requires obedience with faith without getting to see the results right away. That's a lesson we've all had to learn, I think. Probably we all have to relearn. It's just to take Jesus at his word and realize that sometimes we simply have to obey and the blessing of God comes later in our lives for that obedience. It's going to take some measure of faith for these lepers to start on their journey without being healed. Trust that somehow it's going to happen on the way. I'm sure they're expecting immediate relief. But regardless of their belief levels, and amongst the ten, there might have been many, it happens that Jesus heals them while they're on their way. It's like the healing on the way that's recorded of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. Jesus has done this before. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was going down, his servants met him, saying that his son was living. And it's like the healing on the way, also of the centurion's servants in Luke chapter 7 that we've already looked at. In Luke 7, we read, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. For this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Well, this is the kind of faith that those lepers should have in Jesus, the kind that we should as well. But as we're going to see, not many in this group had this kind of faith at all. But what we learn so far in this passage like this is that God responds mercifully to so many people that cry out to him because that's who he is as God. That's what he's like. He's a merciful God. 
it's good to cry out in Jesus' name for healing, for whatever you need. In fact, many unbelievers do exactly this all the time, and we as Christians should encourage them to do so. Sometimes there's this weird teaching in churches that we should shy away from people who don't have an open faith in Jesus, that we shouldn't encourage them to pray. That's not biblical. We should encourage them to pray and encourage them to seek salvation, of course, eventually in God, but God is a merciful God. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, God the Father causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, times of distress and crisis and weakness, they're wonderful opportunities to minister to people. We should display the same general compassion that we see Jesus displaying here and encourage people in their distress to pray to God and to pray with them and to tell them that you're praying for them. Now, of course, we should also desire more for them than just this. We should desire faith that would lead to salvation. And so, of course, we're going to follow up with them on the specifics of how they can have salvation in Christ. But this is what we do often. Those of you that might be involved in hospital ministry or relief efforts, or maybe some of you have gone on crisis response mission trips and these types of things, this is often the the approach that is used to just simply go and, and hang out with people in distress and pray with them and hear their stories. And if we look around carefully enough in our own lives and take time, we're going to see that there are a lot of people that are hurting and want to be prayed with and prayed for. But as disciples of Jesus, we, we're supposed to set this example that we're going to see in a moment of giving glory to God through Jesus Christ and showing our gratitude constantly um, for our salvation and for blessings. It's what people need to see from us, too, that God is a merciful God, that we pray, that we look for His answers in our own lives. So second, we look at Luke's promise that those who respond properly through Jesus Christ are going to receive salvation. So only one returns, we see, to give, to give glory to God through Jesus Christ in verses 15 and 16. And then in verses 17 through 19, the greatest mercy of all is given to only that one salvation. So then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So only one of the ten goes back to master Jesus, to the Christ, to bow in reverence, to give thanks at Jesus' feet, to worship him. The other nine, they were healed, but they just go on to the priest and afterward live their life some kind of a renewed normality, probably a better life than they ever would have expected that they would ever live again, but without the proper thanks given to God. So they go on their merry way, at least for now, until eventually they will face death like us all. But it just seems so strange. But it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. We see this kind of behavior all the time today. It's that people are healed, and they never go to church to praise God for it or learn about Him. And a lot of people, even after they make a vow that, God, if you do this for me, then I'm going to do these things. So if you know about those vows, I would encourage you to call them on it and encourage them to come to church. I mean, see, sadly, so many people, they already got what they wanted, what they really wanted. They got escape from danger, escape from some catastrophe, maybe a help for a sick child, financial relief, whatever it might be. You see, the nine in the story, they got what they wanted from the Messiah, and it's very tragic because there was so much more that the Messiah has to offer. And we don't know where, what, whether the one who returns here does so before or after he sees the priest. I mean, 
It seems like it's beforehand, but not certain. But this one is glorifying God with a loud voice, with such exuberance that befits what God has done for him. He sings like we read in Psalm 30 this morning, if you will, you've turned for me my morning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. But most importantly for us to notice is that he worships God through Jesus Christ as the Christ. That's why the story's here, because he falls down at Jesus' feet and worships him. And Luke emphatically ends the story with the sentence, and he was a Samaritan. See, these are the kinds of people that we've been noticing in the Gospel of Luke so far that are generally responding to Jesus in a positive way. They're the unexpected ones. It's not, not the Jewish people that say they're looking for the Messiah, but the Samaritans. It's also one of Luke's themes is that God is including all the peoples of the world, the Gentiles, if you will, in his salvation plan. In fact, the Samaritan mission would take off in just a matter of months. And of course, Luke wrote the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. His second book is the Acts of the Apostles. And in there, just a few months later from this episode, we have um, the Samaritan mission taking off. So here we see in Acts 8, 4, Therefore those who have been scattered about when preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was much rejoicing in that city. But we should notice above everything that a general thanks toward God is insufficient. What the nine did is not sufficient. What's required is a wholehearted glorifying of God through Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the teaching of Luke. That's the teaching of the actions of our characters and our story this morning in this passage. And the greatest mercy of all has yet to be come to play in our story, and that's in the end, in verses 17 to 19, where he receives salvation. Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way, your faith has saved you. So these are all three rhetorical questions that Jesus is asking. And the first one, to teach those who are watching, to teach, of course, those of us who are listening and reading. So were there not ten cleansed? The answer, of course, is yes. Right. He acts surprised, but to draw our attention to the fact. It really is amazing when you think about it. I mean, this was no simple little miracle. They were cleansed of leprosy. And only one out of ten comes back to give thanks. That's crazy. So then the second question is, but the nine, where are they? And it's a question that passes judgment at the same time that you ask the question. Because we know where they should be and where they're not. And Jesus might be implying, well, they went to the priest, but they didn't go to God. Because they took God's mercy for granted, and they didn't honor his Messiah. There is no way to God except through Jesus Christ. He's the only way, and that's what's been declared in this gospel account so far. Third question is, was no one found to turn back and give glory to God except this foreigner? This is sarcasm in Jesus' question. 
against his own people, the Jews. The only one you see with religious sensibilities appears to be this pagan Samaritan. He's the only one that got it right. The only way to glorify God and really say thank you is to go to Jesus Christ. Well, then Jesus sends the Samaritan on his way with the typical words, go, your faith has saved you or made you well, translated either way. It's meant to have a double level of meaning. So go, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. And we should leave this passage of Scripture understanding that all ten received the good gift of healing from their leprosy, but only the Samaritan received the best gift of all, and that was salvation. You see, those who respond properly to God's mercies are going to receive salvation in Christ. The story teaches us that faith alone in Jesus as the Christ truly does bring us salvation. Have you put your faith in Christ, your Savior, by His cross and resurrection? Those of us who have, we see ourselves as the Samaritan in this passage and constantly want to give God glory through Jesus Christ for all the salvation He brings to us, the salvation and all the blessings He brings in our life. But you know, today, Jesus still responds the same way. He still responds to calls for mercy when people ask Him for help in their lives. And then He expects faith as the proper response. Perhaps some of us this morning need to return and give glory to God, as the title of the sermon is, in Christ. But again, I want to encourage us all as disciples of Jesus to, to pray with the unconverted and to pray for them, for acts of mercy in their life, because God will often use these things to bring people to Himself. God is really a generous God. He's not a stingy God. And people need to know this and see this. The ones who respond to this kind of ministry and perspective that you put out there sometimes will really surprise you. And then it's not uncommon, really, for many people to come to a true faith and glorify God in Christ and find their salvation in Him. You know, almost everyone has been in this position in their life. If you live long enough, you will be. Almost everyone has cried out to God and received mercy for Him at some point in their life, a mercy that they can't explain when He intervened in their life. But you know, people don't tend to think in terms of the Samaritan in Luke 17, but they tend to think in the terms of the other nine. So challenge people on this and the response, especially if you know them personally and, and you know their situation was recent. You know, it's another way to begin a conversation that might turn out to be very profitable down the road for the gospel. Uh, this obliges people to look back and, and see that maybe their gratitude wasn't sufficient. Maybe it was really more characterized by ingratitude or somehow entitlement. And hopefully people can then see that they nearly need to thank God and find their faith in Christ. So don't let people abscond with God's mercies without a conversation. Uh, that's our role as a disciple, is to bring that to their attention. In fact, that's what Luke's doing, really, at one level, when he writes this passage here. Now, something else I want us to notice, too, is that there's a very legitimate parallel between leprosy and sin. Although the connection is not explicit in Luke 17, it was explicit in Luke 5. If you go back to chapter 5, you can see that that story, in conjunction with the story of the paralytic, makes it very clear that it's a wonderful parallel. It's worth repeating here. And that is, is that we're all lepers, if you will, in a spiritual sense, if we can only see ourselves as we truly are. We all tend to think that we're pretty good people. But see, leprosy was a horrific, uh, dreaded disease, and it was this visible expression of just how wretched sin is. 
I mean, leprosy is a very good picture of being totally infected with sin, unable to do anything about our corruption, living under God's judgment, left alive but really dead. So when we think about leprosy, we shouldn't only think about some ancient disease, but we should think about ourselves. It's quite an accurate portrayal of the natural sinfulness of humanity. And then our hope is, is that when we see ourselves for who we truly are, and we see how willing Jesus is to cleanse, we cry out to him and plead for his mercy, and he cleanses our souls from sin, and we find that he does so thoroughly. Jesus cleanses us from that inside and out, and restores us to wholeness, and restores us to true community. But perhaps the most basic application of Luke 17 is that we as disciples are to be more like the Samaritan in the story. Pretty simple. To be filled with thankfulness. As one, um, one pastor put it in the previous century, he said, we increase the sweetness of our gifts by thankfulness for them. We taste them twice when we ruminate on them in gratitude. To ruminate means to review with deep thought. Both in regard to earthly and spiritual blessings, we're all sinners by unthankfulness and we lose much thereby. So the thing that strikes me about this passage is that you get to actually taste the benefits of God's mercy in your life twice if you spend time ruminating on what God has done in your life. And so how do we do this? First of all, it's course, by thankful prayer in the power of the spirits, using the scriptures, going back. You can actually even use the story of Luke 17 and apply it to your own situation, situations in the past, situations that might be coming up in your life, something you're going through at the moment. And this can even help you in giving your thanks to God and then meditating on the depth, second of all, meditating on the depth of God's mercy to you. I mean, sometimes it's so easy just to say, oh, Thank God, thank you, God, for getting me out of the situation or dealing with the situation. But then to actually consider all sort of like all the little tangents that are attached to that, if you will, all the little little pieces that go along with how God is showing his mercy to you, it just allows you to experience again and again and again God's mercy to you. And so it's my prayer that we would constantly be giving God glory through Jesus Christ in gratitude for salvation and for all of his blessings in our lives. Let me pray for us today. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this passage and how it makes so abundantly clear to us that you are our God, our Savior, the one who provides healing and health, the one who brings us the salvation from sin that we need. For you would eventually be the one who would offer up yourself, the perfect one for us ungodly ones. I pray for us this morning again that you would cause us to be a very, very thankful people, deeply so, even more than we have been before by spending time thinking about what you have done in our lives, by using your scripture, even this passage in Luke 17, to be something that would guide us to praise, to new words of thankfulness to you. And we pray all these things, Lord Jesus, for your sake. Amen.